You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you uh, today as we take another step into the life of John Wesley uh, in the series called Wesley Say What? Um, Wesley said some crazy things, uh, even for us 300 years later of trying to figure him out. Uh, but certainly for his day, uh, very controversial. And so we're getting into some of this uh, life and theology of, of Wesley. But this is where the Methodist movement began uh, some 300 years ago. This is where the people called Methodists began their journey. Now, Wesley was not uh, big in stature. He was only about 5 feet 4, uh, 130 pounds soaking wet. Uh, but he did not pull any punches when it came uh, to the gospel often controversial, and one of his sermons uh, that we're going to talk about today is one of the most controversial sermons that he ever preached. Uh, And a lot of times Wesley was not even allowed to preach in churches. Uh, He was kicked out of a lot of them because of some of the things that he was uh, teaching at that time. And so he took to traveling by horseback, and he would go wherever the people were, uh, oftentimes meeting just in the street. Uh, He preached on his father's tombstone one time, Uh, He would preach in bars, just wherever a gathering of people was, Wesley would go, and as I said earlier, he would oftentimes uh, oftentimes preach three or four times a day uh, if that was necessary. But huge crowds began uh, to follow him, and so obviously there was something to what he was teaching, Uh, and it didn't take long before crowds of 10, 15, 20,000 people uh, were showing up to hear him. Uh, So we began last week with a sermon written in 1741 called The Almost... Christian. And I made the point, and I'm going to make it again because it's important, that all preachers, anytime you hear the gospel or someone's teaching uh, scripture to you, you need to bear in mind that what they're telling you is influenced at least to some degree by their own journey of faith, by their own life experiences. These things all color what we believe and how we see God in different ways. And that is certainly and absolutely true Uh, for John Wesley. So just to give you a little background, if you weren't here last week, but again to remind you, even if you were, Wesley was educated at Oxford, uh, a very renowned college even today, and so very, very well educated. This is how he was raised. In 1728, he was ordained an Anglican priest, and in 1735, he was called to be the minister at the colony here in Savannah, Georgia. And we talked about last week, but again, I'll I'll share it again. On that three-month boat ride over here, he questioned his faith. Because for all of his studying, all of his education, again, a very well-educated man, he made it his point to memorize large portions of Scripture. He also translated the New Testament from Greek to English by himself. A very well-educated person. But in 1735, on that boat, there there was a storm that came up. And as he looked around, there was a group of Moravians uh, that were over in the corner praying and singing hymns while he was fearing for his life. And he writes in his journal in, in that year, how is it that I have no faith? So if you think about this man, very well educated, knows scripture backwards, forwards, left and right, but yet when his faith is tested, he says, I don't know if I believe this to be true. 
1738, he returned to England and joined what was called the Holy Club that you might have heard of. Started by his brother Charles, but John came back and started leading that group. This small group of preachers and people that committed themselves to studying God's Word, to praying together, and then to have accountability for one another. They were mocked by outsiders as the Methodists. That was an insult to this particular group because they were so holy and methodical in what they did. But in that same year, 1738, he had his experience at Aldersgate. He went to a meeting of Moravians at Aldersgate Street in London, and for the first time in his life, he felt his heart strangely warmed. An awakening that God can and will do what God said he would do, that God would forgive his sins, that God would reconcile him to God's self that became personal. It became a transformation from knowledge about God to really knowing God in his heart. And so Wesley would say, as we talked about last week, this is the difference between the almost Christian, one who knows about God, and the altogether Christian, the one that has God's love shed abroad in his heart and has awakening to what God has done. In that same year, 1741, he wrote this sermon called Christian Perfection. And this idea that Christians can achieve perfection in this lifetime is probably the most distinctive thing of anything he ever said, and also one of the most confusing, and also one of the most controversial. How can it be that us mere humans, as much as we might try, could be perfect in this lifetime. In the introduction to this sermon, just to give you some context again, Wesley said there is no scripture anywhere so offensive as this. But yet he stood and he preached that this is indeed possible. So his text for this particular sermon is Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. We're going to start at verse 10 to give us a little more context. But this is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. We're going to start at verse 10. Let's hear God's word. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are mature Be of the same mind. And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now bear in mind when I'm sharing this sermon with you, this was initially about a two or three hour sermon. And I'm condensing it down to just a few minutes. So there's lots of things I'm not going to say. So if you really want to dig into this a lot more, you can read the sermon for yourself. It's online. It is a long sermon. So I'm just getting down to the core of what Wesley 
was saying. First of all, Wesley says we need to understand what he does not mean by being perfect. So first of all, Christians are not perfect in knowledge. We can know a lot of things, but we don't know all things and never will. So there's that. Number two, we are not free from making mistakes. Wesley says the best and wisest among us can be wrong. (laughs) And I love this, and we're going to get into this next week, so hold on. Wesley's words, not mine. Even children of God don't agree on the interpretation of many places in Scripture. Yet both are children of God. Hold on to that one. Number three, Christians are not free from sin. Inward and outward imperfections. And then number four, we are not free from temptation. So these are the four things. When he talks about being perfect, these are the four things that he said will always be an issue for us Christians. So then he says, here's how Christians are perfect. Christians are perfect in that they are born of God. Those who are justified, born again, do not continue in sin. Their old selves are crucified with Christ. Sin no more has dominion over them because they are not under the law but under grace. And since sin entered the world through Adam, not a single man who has done good and did not sin until Christ, who came to take away our sins and redeem those under the law. Now, to really unlock this for you, what is he talking about? I'm going to go back to that last verse of the scripture that we read. When Paul says, let those of us who are mature be of the same mind, talking about Christ. Remember I said that Wesley translated from Greek to English the New Testament for himself. He translates that word that we have as mature as perfect. So Wesley has this idea that maturity and perfection are the same thing. So that might help. It's not that we can attain absolute perfection. We are human beings. And so we'll always have those four human frailties that Wesley mentioned, to make mistakes, to be wrong, to commit sin, to fall to temptation. But we can be fully mature in our faith. In other words... Christian perfection is to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. all comprised in one simple word, love. And on these two things, loving God and loving neighbor, contain the whole idea of Christian perfection. By doing these things, we are perfect in love and are going on to perfection. You've probably heard that before. Notice Wesley says we are doing these things. We're not thinking these things. We don't listen to these things. We don't just preach these things. We do them. Now, grace is certainly one of the things that Wesley teaches a lot about. It's a huge part of his theology. And in Methodist circles, we talk about God's grace in three different ways. And we talked about this last week, but again, it's worth repeating. First of all is God's prevenient grace. The grace that goes before us. Before we are aware or awakened to God in any way, God is working in our lives 
from the moment we are born. This is where we get the idea in the Methodist Church of baptizing infants, and some people really struggle with that. But all we're saying in baptizing an infant is we're recognizing that this is a child of God. We're recognizing that God's grace is going to pour out upon this child from the moment of birth to be raised in a Christian community by a Christian family. That's the commitment that you make. And at some point in time, they will make a decision for themselves about what they believe to be true. All we're saying is that God's grace goes before all of that. And in the Methodist Church, we have a a system called confirmation, which some of our students are going through now, where you spend a year learning about God. Who is God? What does it mean to love neighbor? Who is my neighbor? All these questions that we have. At the end of it, there's that series of questions that they're asked to answer to confirm their baptism for themselves. This is God's prevenient grace. Justifying grace is that moment in which our hearts are awakened or strangely warmed to the presence of God. That moment that we have that assurance and that trust that God is who he says he is, that God will do what he says he will do, that he will forgive my sins and reconcile me to himself. That moment of conversion when our hearts are awakened. And then lastly, there's sanctifying grace, the work of the Holy Spirit that molds us into the very image of Christ. Now, when you think about Wesley's life, you might think about it this way. All those years that he spent rigorously studying about God, searching for who God is, we might consider God's prevenient grace because until Aldersgate, Wesley didn't have that personal knowledge of who God was. He didn't have that trust and assurance that we talk about with justifying grace. So we might consider all of his studying and praying and all of his work and education God's prevenient grace. God was laying a foundation for what he was going to spend the rest of his life doing. Justifying grace might be that moment at Aldersgate when he had that conversion experience, when he saw God in a new way, that it was now personal. And in this particular sermon, when he talks about perfection, we're talking about the sanctifying grace of God, the work that takes place in us by the act of the Holy Spirit within born-again Christians, those who have put our faith and our trust in God. We're now infants in our faith, and we're molded into the very image of Christ. God does his part, and we are to do ours if we are to reach perfection. It's kind of like this. Imagine when you went to first grade and they taught you how to add up, you know, 2 plus 2 and 3 plus 3, and you're like, yeah, I got it. And we said at the end of first grade, I know all I need to know about numbers. I'm good. That's all I need to know. Or when they taught you how to write your name and the alphabet and, you know, some basic words, that's all I need. I'm good, right? We're infants. We're learning. There's more to know. And Wesley is really, really careful to help us understand that making a decision to trust God and have that assurance is only a first step. We are now infants in our faith. And the only way that we can learn more about our faith and understand who God is is to do the things that God commands us to do. It's important for us to note as we get into this a little deeper that salvation for John Wesley is not a one-and-done static state. He did not believe that we can simply say a prayer and we are done for the rest of our lives. I have punched my ticket, I'm out. 
Doesn't matter if I go to church, doesn't matter if I ever do a Bible study, doesn't matter if I go to Sunday school, I have salvation and I'm done. Wesley would argue very strongly against that. Because for Wesley, it is a continuous journey that begins from the moment we are born with God working in our lives until that moment when we decide for ourselves that God is who he is, that God can do exactly what God says he can do when we are justified, when we turn towards God for the first time. And now we invite the Holy Spirit to work within us as we learn what it means to love God and to love our neighbor, to do those things. Because that's what we're called to do. And Wesley would say that we might well achieve the state of perfection. The problem is we may not stay there for very long. There's a story about a man walking up to Charles Spurgeon, who is another great English preacher from way back when, at a retreat. And this man walked up to Spurgeon. He said, you know what, sir? I have reached a state of spiritual perfection. I am loving God and I am loving neighbor with all of my heart. And Spurgeon said, that's great. He grabbed a pitcher of ice water and poured it on his head. And as this man reacted, <laughs> rather angrily and humanly, to what he had just done, Spurgeon looked at, him, he looked at him and he said, but you didn't stay there very long, did you? After all, we are human. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now Wesley would take this as the proof, the evidence, see Jesus says so, that we can be perfect. But again, to be perfect is to be mature. And so for Wesley, Jesus isn't saying that we will be like God, that we can suddenly, I am like Christ. But the goal of the Christian life is to have the same mind as Christ. God doing his part through the Holy Spirit and us doing our part. And that's the part that we miss. For Wesley, we are to use the means of grace. Remember that from last week? Works of piety, a relationship with God. Works of mercy, loving our neighbor. We are to attend on all the ordinances of God all of the time. So worship, prayer, study, communion, fasting. All of the time, at every opportunity, we are to be doing those things so that we might mature in our faith constantly seeking God, to go deeper with God, to maybe reach that point in our lives where we can say we are fully mature in our faith, at least for a while. If you think about the words that Paul says in the scripture we read from Philippians, we press on to make it our own. We strain forward to what lies ahead. We press on towards the goal. There's a journey here. And a lot of times the Christian faith is presented as the say a prayer, get baptized, and you're done. It's just not true. And Wesley is very careful to help us understand that that is the beginning of a journey. Yes, God does his part, but we are now called to do ours as we press on towards the goal. The other thing for Wesley is that holiness is not simply personal. Holiness or growing in holiness is not just about me and God. Holiness is nothing if it's not social and if it's not practical. 
In other words, holiness is something that we do in community. We grow in our faith because we surround ourselves with other people on the same journey. It's a lot easier to run a marathon if you're with a whole bunch of other people struggling with you than it is to do it by yourself. Because when you're with other people, you can encourage one another. You can pick each other up when you fall down. You can say, hey, keep going. How do you do that by yourself? It's like that with our faith. And a lot of people say, I don't need the church to be religious. I don't need the church to be a Christian. Oh, but you do. Oh, but you do. We all need each other. He also said that that, uh, holiness is also practical. So to grow in our faith, to grow in love of God, to grow in love of our neighbor is something that we do. It requires us to move, to do something. Whether it's to study, whether it's go to a Sunday school class, whether it's to read scripture for ourselves, whatever it might be, there is work to be done. A lot of times Wesley spent time in prisons and on the streets and in bars going to where the people were that needed to hear the good news. There was never an expectation for Wesley that he would build a church and the people would come and that he would sit in that church Monday through Sunday just waiting for the people to come to him so he could tell them about the good news. That is not Wesleyan at all. He went to where the people were every day. A lot of times when he was sick, a lot of times when he couldn't walk, There was one uh, journal entry I was reading last night where he was kneeling down to preach because he had broken his ankle. It didn't stop him. Holiness is nothing if it's not social and if it's not practical. The Christian life is a way of devotion, and it's defined by unity and by holiness. It's defined by sanctification that the Holy Spirit is working within us. It's defined by a growing in grace, advancing daily in the knowledge and love of God and of neighbor. And we've heard these words before. Love God and love neighbor. Yeah, 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 I got it. The question is, do we do it at every opportunity? And so I thought it would be interesting. I found a study that was done several years ago of a group of four to nine-year-olds. And the question was, what is love? I'm only going to share the best ones with you. Here they are. If learning to love is like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. Or it gives me a headache just to think about it. Nobody needs that kind of trouble. (laughs) This one's great. If you want to learn to love, start with someone you don't like. (laughs) Uncomfortable yet? Love is like two old people who are still friends even when they know each other really well. The reason why Paul wrote two letters to the church in Corinth is because they had not yet figured out what it meant to love God and certainly not what it meant to love one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, as the church, we can make all kinds of noise, we can say all kinds of things, we can post all kinds of things on Facebook about people we don't like, we don't agree with, 
might be adding that part. But if we don't love, we are nothing. Nothing. To quote C.S. Lewis, don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And when you are behaving as if you love them, you will presently come to love them. In other words, loving is an action that we choose to do whether we want to or not. Why? Because Jesus said so. And it's just that simple. To be wrestling about it, to love God and love neighbor is not something we need to think about. Especially if you've been in the church for a while, what's left to think about? We don't need to talk about it. We should know what that means. We can read it in Scripture. You've heard many sermons about it before now. The issue is, are we willing to do it? Can the church be about loving people without that being contingent on whether we agree with them, whether they look like us, whether they vote for the same political party as we do? All completely irrelevant Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. And for Wesley, this idea of growing in maturity, to grow in our faith is to say, I will do both of those things all of the time, no matter what. And I will keep doing it, and I will keep studying it until I have it figured out, until I reach this state of perfection or maturity, until I can say, I've got it. And even then, we may not stay there very long. The reality is that God loved us even when we have turned our back on God. God loved us even when we have rejected God. God loved us when we have wanted nothing to do with God. God loved us when we stood by and watched as he was rejected, mocked, beaten, and put on a Roman cross and left to die. God still loves us when we struggle with our faith, when we ask the tough questions, when we're hurt by the trials of life and we blame everybody. We might even blame God when we turn to everyone and everything except for God. There is nothing, nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God. That is the love that we are talking about. Nothing can come between it just as nothing should come between our love of God and our love of neighbor. Nothing. There should not ever be a reason why we say, I can't. To quote Paul again, in that same letter to the church in Corinth, when everything else is gone, when life fades dimly, when we have seen all that we can see with our earthly eyes, Only three things will remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Can we reach Christian perfection or maturity in this life? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because God has already done his part. God's already there. God's already demonstrated it. God is calling us to it. God has shown us the way. It's up to us 
to decide as the church if we really want to do that or not. Do you want to be a part of a church that loves or part of a church that says, maybe not? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.